This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to this Resolution Foundation event. We're here to talk about low pay. Um, so it may not be all perk, but there will definitely be some good news as over the course of the next hour and a quarter. We're doing that because we're publishing today our annual Low Pay Britain report. Very exciting. We've been doing this for a while, not because we haven't got any imagination, but because we're a charity focused on low earners and low middle income households. And that is a big deal. Every year that report sets out what's been happening in the past. So it digs into what's happened in the policy agenda, usually raises in the minimum wage, which we're going to come back to in a second, and what that's done to low pay rates in Britain for different sectors, different kinds of workers, different people. And we are going to do that today. But the report this year is a bit different because it's also looking forward and saying what should a wider low pay and good work agenda look like for Britain and how should we think about that in the context of wider questions about the UK's economic strategy and it's doing that because we are in the closing stages of the economy 2030 inquiry there's a big banner up here with a kind of optimistic looking picture of a road in it the, um, uh, and that is getting to some policy proposals about what a better economic strategy for the UK looks like and this paper is answer, asking what does a good work strategy for low earners look like in that context so by part, being part of an economic strategy it's not just saying what happens if you change some things that affect low earners but what does it do to other people what does it do to the shape of your economy and what does it do um, to other things that you care about i.e trade-offs exist which we hopefully all knew because you all live lives where trade-offs do exist. Um, like you chose to come today, so you're missing out on other fun stuff, but you made the right choices, every single one of them, especially those sitting in the front row. So that is the plan for today. Now, one of the authors of the report, Nai Comanetti, a senior economist at the foundation, is going to start by giving you a brief summary of the report. But he's got about eight slides, nine slides, and the report has got hundreds of pages or whatever. So read the whole report, obviously. I know you're all going to do that because you're good people that want to know every page of every Resolution Foundation paper. And then we've got a brilliant panel. So you're going to hear from Sarah O'Connor, who's an economist and associate editor at the Financial Times and has been writing everything, every you should have read on the labour market and low paid work in particular over the course of eight years now. 10 years now, because we're old, that's what middle-aged does for you, forget years. Not that you're middle-aged, I'm middle-aged. <laughs> uh, and then you're going to hear from uh, Alan Manning, Professor of Economics at LSE, who is one of Britain's leading experts on the labour market and in particular policy interventions in it and what their wider impacts um, can be and always has lots to uh, for the rest of us to learn from. So that is the plan. And then we're going to do the usual discussions and questions. You can go on to uh, Slido and log on as normal. It's hashtag good work because we should have good work. So that's what we've put as the hashtag. So go and put that on and then we'll go through those questions. We've got a poll as well because, you know, you need to keep it lively in life. All right, that's the plan. Now, how are we going to get some good work? Not for workers at the Resolution Foundation. They've already got excellent work. Uh, morning, everyone. Um, uh, first of all, thank you to those of you who chipped in with some ideas at various points. I can see one of you, sit, uh, a couple of you sitting in the audience, so thank you for that. Um, so to start with a, a summary, somewhat controversially, um, so I was going to do a bit of the problem statement, which is too many low earners uh, lacking uh, good work. Then I'll talk about the good news, which is the progress on the minimum wage. Then the less good news, which is our very low minimum standards across uh, a number of areas and the lack of progress in those areas 
Uh, and then finally, a couple of thoughts about how we might think about this in the context of um, those Economy 2030 uh, strategy um, thoughts that Torsten just mentioned. Um, so starting with the problem statements, I've got a few examples here of uh, uh, to uh, put forward this idea that low earners lack uh, good work in some respects. But I'm starting with a slightly unusual measure, so I'll come on to some slightly more familiar territory. But this uh, is to put forward the point that uh, low earners lack the everyday flexibility that many high earners take for granted. So uh, if I have to deal with something that kicks off at home, uh, I can do so. Torsen will continue to pay me. Uh, but that is uh, not the experience uh, of many low earners. So we surveyed uh, private sector employees and the majority, 55%, said that if they you know, have to go home to deal with an emergency with their family, uh, they can do so and they'll still be paid. Um, but as you can see, I'm about to show you the, how that breaks down across high and low earners. Uh, and that is not the reality for low earners, uh, the majority of whom uh, they could miss that day of work, but they would not be paid. So I think this is quite a nice uh, illustration of the way that the experience of work differs for, for high and low earners. Uh, moving on, a couple of perhaps slightly more familiar measures of good work. So we've got um, on the left, the proportion of workers who say they have little or no autonomy over their tasks. And on the right hand side, the proportion who are either on an insecure contract, so that includes uh, agency workers or zero hour contracts, or people who say they're paid hourly and, and whose pay is volatile, so you know, goes up and down. So just here showing you that uh, having a little autonomy and having insecurity over your pay and hours is again much more concentrated uh, among uh, low paid work. Um, okay, so what have we done about this as a country? Well, broadly, we have focused on raising the minimum wage, and I'm going to argue that we should be doing uh, much, many more things besides this to address those problems that I've just shown you. But I do want to start with the good news. So we have had a minimum wage in this country since 1999. This is what the shape of pay growth looked like in the uh, 15, 20 years before that. So pay growth was higher uh, at the top. So this is across the pay distribution in hourly terms, uh, real terms, annualized pay growth uh, at the bottom, uh, right up to the top. And so you can see there's a very strong skew towards higher earners. Then we introduced a minimum wage and it looked like this. So other than being overall much lower, because in this period we had a financial crisis and we haven't really had any productivity growth since then, uh, we have at least changed the shape of pay growth. So it's been uh, stronger for low earners uh, in that period, the, the 90s and the, the first 20 years or so uh, of the minimum wage's existence. Uh, but in the more recent period, we have put uh, rocket boosters under this shape. So this is the national living wage era. So since 2015, uh, we've been raising the minimum wage faster based on a target to hit two thirds of the median. And you can see that that has um, even more transformed the shape of pay growth. So we've gone from a yellow line skewed to the top to a red line skewed very much to the bottom. Um, and what has that achieved? Well, obviously, if you have stronger pay growth at the bottom, you're going to have falling uh, hourly pay inequality. Uh, so this is one way of showing that this is a traditional measure of low pay and it's the proportion of uh, workers who are earning below two thirds of the median on an hourly basis. And this is the way we, we tend to measure low pay. And you can see that in the first, um, so we've been writing low pay reports since 2010 and there wasn't really much happening. We published reports where that line was, was staying the same. So I don't think they were uh, as exciting uh, as the low pay reports are now. Uh, but since 2015, that line's been falling fast uh, every year. Uh, and it's going to continue to do so uh, 
because we have a, 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 a committed target of ending low pay, so, so the government wants that blue line to fall to zero. I should say it won't quite fall to zero because this chart in includes some younger people who are paid uh, below the adult living wage and it includes some people who are paid illegally below the minimum wage as well. Um, I wanted to mention that uh, one sort of positive note here is that although we've been increasing the minimum wage, what we haven't seen since 2016 at least is more and more people bunching at the minimum. So that is something that we expected to happen when this policy was first announced of a fast rising minimum, uh, but that hasn't happened. And actually the number of people on or below the minimum wage is slightly lower now than it was uh, five years ago, which is uh, quite interesting. And I don't actually have a, a great answer as to why it, it's a bit of a puzzle. Um, one further asterisk, however, is to say that um, uh, enforcement uh, matters and uh, it looks like in the ASH data, so this is ONS's annual survey of hours and earnings, that we have a rising proportion of workers who are paid less than minimum wage. So obviously if you're going to be ambitious with your policy, you also need to be ambitious with your uh, enforcement. Um, okay, so that's the minimum wage and that's uh, very much the uh, good news. Uh, what else should we be doing to improve work to address some of those problems that uh, I started with? So first of all, uh, Yes, we should continue to increase the minimum wage. So uh, this is showing you the bite of the minimum wage, which is its value uh, relative to uh, median hourly pay. So you can see that in those early years, 99 and early 2000s, it was increasing, but fairly uh, you know, conservatively. Uh, and then the pace of increasing has been uh, going ever faster. And since uh, 2020, we have this uh, two thirds bite target. And you can see that that has uh, given us this quite fast rate of increase. Uh, I've drawn a straight line on this chart to show you what would happen uh, if we continued raising the minimum wage at this bite. And based on what the OBR think is going to happen to average pay, uh, that would take you towards a target of uh, over £13 by 2029. That is to say, but that is very much an if. That is if uh, we manage to hit this uh, bite target and if that is the rate at which uh, wages grow. So that is definitely something I think we should keep on doing. Uh, but I will come back to the question of trade-offs. So we're not you know, blasé about that. I have a whole slide about trade-offs coming up. Um, but pay isn't the only thing that matters. So I showed you that by way of showing some of the problems earlier. But another way of looking at that is to ask workers what they would like to see improved in their job. So this, again, is from that survey that we ran on, on private sector employees. We asked them from this list uh, which, which, which of these things would be the aspect of your work which would make the biggest positive difference to you. But actually what I'm showing you here is the proportion of the people who picked that thing who said, I would be willing to turn down a wage rise to uh, gain that benefit. And, the, uh, and, and those wage rises that we asked people if they were willing to turn down were up to 10%. So you know, workers really do place a sort of material value on these things. Now you might say the first two, well, I'm not surprised people are willing to turn down a bit of pay for working less. Um, and essentially that is what is happening with people saying, you know, I want more holiday or I want to work fewer hours. Um, but actually quite a few of these don't really have much to do with pay at all. So especially things like work to be less intense, uh, being treated with more dignity at work, for my work to be more meaningful. You know, all of these things aren't, I don't think, directly related to pay. And it shows that those sort of more intangible things do uh, matter. Um, the other point to make here, though, is that we're not. So th this report is about minimum standards. So, you know, regulation, really. Uh, we're not about to, to claim that all of these things can be regulated for, that you can through uh, the law, you know, give people uh, meaningful work necessarily. So we're going to publish another paper on how through worker power uh, you might help workers achieve more of these things. But you certainly can achieve some of these things through regulation. And so I'm going to talk about 
uh, two of those now. And so the priorities that we set out in this report, the, pl the places where we would start when it comes to raising minimum standards are sick pay and then uh, control over your, uh, the volatility the workers experience in their pay and hours. So I was going to start with sick pay. So this chart is showing you the proportion of workers who, if they were to take a week uh, off work sick, uh, the proportion who would expect to receive statutory sick pay only or who would be uh, expecting to receive their normal rate of pay and also the proportion that would expect not to be paid at all. If you're not familiar with the UK's uh, statutory sick pay system, uh, it's a flat uh, rate cash payment of uh, now, it, it, it went up uh, last week to £109. Uh, if you earn less than £123 a week, you're ineligible. So that explains some of those uh, red bars over on the left-hand side there. Um, but, uh, you know, that is just not really relevant to many workers because this chart is showing you that for, for the high earners, most of them, you know, you, you, you take a day sick and you're paid as normal. So, you know, the statutory scheme just has no relevance um, at all. And I think this, you know, the, the pay dispersion here really is quite striking. So statutory sick pay and the design of that scheme is really something that affects low earners much more uh, than it does high earners. Uh, and so improving this scheme, you know, would have a really direct impact on uh, inequality. Uh, and by way of giving you an international comparison as well, it really is worth stressing that the UK's uh, sick pay scheme is the least generous across the OECD. The only two countries who have a less generous uh, scheme are the US and, the, and Korea who don't have a scheme uh, at all. Um, so what could we do about that? Uh, we, in our report, propose uh, changing the system to one based on earnings replacement. So here I'm just showing you what would happen uh, to someone taking a week of sick under the current scheme on the left-hand side and on our proposed scheme on the right-hand side. So this is based on um, earnings being replaced at a 65% rate, which is roughly equivalent to the median replacement rate across OECD countries. And also, importantly, the number of waiting days being reduced to one. So currently you don't get anything for your first three days of sick. We think that uh, is not right and should be uh, reduced. And so you can see that would obviously make a very big difference to the, the pay that people receive uh, in those weeks. Uh, okay, the second priority for us would be uh, giving workers more security over their hours. And this is to do with that problem we highlighted earlier of uh, pay and hours uh, volatility. To further hammer home the point that this matters, this chart is showing you the proportion of workers who say they are uh, anxious about unexpected changes in their hours of work. Uh, and this data comes from 2017, so it's slightly old, but it is still the best we have. But I think it does make the point quite, quite powerfully. So more than a third of the lowest paid workers say they are very or fairly anxious about unexpected changes in their hours of work. And that's obviously something that's much less common uh, among high earners. So to deal with that, we would recommend, as we have done for a few years, and as the Low Pay Commission uh, has also been recommending, a right to a regular contract where that reflects your normal hours. So if you're every week you're working 15 hours a week, but your contract says you can be zero down, we think you should have a right to a contract that gives you uh, that 15 hours a week. Uh, and secondly, there should be a minimum notice period for shift changes and compensation where changes happen within that period. Um, so finally, what about trade-offs? So you might think, well, it's all very well proposing these higher minimum standards, but what, what's that going to do to employment? What's that going to do to, um, you know, within the, within the sick pay scheme, you might think, well, surely everyone's just going to go off sick if, if we do these things. So we do devote quite a lot of space in the report to, to thinking about these trade-offs. Um, but I just wanted to do that in one slide. So to be slightly rude about our current approach, um, 
uh, we currently have, and this is talking about the minimum wage specifically, which is uh, obviously where, where po the policy action is. Uh, we have an approach at the moment of raising the minimum wage subject to a target. Uh, and then the remit that the government sets the low pay commission says, well, we don't want this to keep on happening if workers' employment effects are being significantly uh, affected. And you know, that definitely makes sense. Uh, but I argue in the report that you know, it's somewhat vague. So it, it doesn't provide a very secure basis on which to make policy because it's not clear what significant means. Um, so instead, what could we do? Well, first of all, I think we could be quite a bit clearer about what we mean when it comes to that employment trade-off. You know, exactly how many jobs are we willing to trade off against a high minimum wage? And we talk about that in some detail in the report in the language of employment elasticities. Um, but I won't go into that here, but maybe we come back to it. Um, secondly, I think that raising these minimum standards uh, alongside the minimum wage should be done in the round because they all in some way or another contribute to uh, increasing uh, wage costs. So it's quite important for, I think, a single body to have oversight over how that's happening and what the effects of those things are. You wouldn't want to raise the minimum wage only to see standards being eroded elsewhere. So I think someone doing that, uh, uh, someone doing that um, with, a, with a, a full picture of what's happening is quite important and the LPC is the obvious place for that to happen. And then finally, th this should all be happening in the context of our wider economic strategy. On which note, a final slide about big picture trade-offs. So some of the trade-offs that we talk about in the report, I think, are at the more benign end of things. But I think we do need to be realistic that if you raise labour costs, you're likely to uh, increase the relative cost of the goods and services that rely on that low-paid labour. Now. This chart gives you some reason, I think, to think that might be benign, or at least that it might have desirable distributional implications. So I'm showing you here the proportion of consumption and employment uh, that retail, leisure and hospitality, which is where you know, a large number of low paid workers work. Um, what proportion of those things uh, does, do, do those sectors comprise? Broken down by uh, income quintiles. So you can see that on the left hand side, you've got the uh, lowest income groups where they consume relatively little as a proportion of their overall consumption of those things, uh, much higher at the top, and then the opposite pattern for employment. So it would be by increasing labour standards in those sectors, we would be directly benefiting those low income households, but contributing to price pressure for those higher income households. Um, okay, that was it. Thank you very much. Great. Thank you very much indeed. So that is a overarching argument which is there's not enough good work and and that the problems are concentrated amongst low earners which you can see in terms of standards versus other countries and you can see in terms of low earners not getting what higher earners take for granted in the world of work some of which is more inevitable than others but some of which is a choice the, um, uh, that we've made big progress on the minimum wage but we haven't made any real progress anywhere else the, um, despite everyone talking about it and Sarah writing lots of columns about it and us writing lots of papers about it for forever <laughs> the, um, um, and that we have to decide what the priorities are going forward that's basically broad of the argument and integrate the trade-offs into what you think is the right answer rather than kind of pretending they don't exist which is what one set of people do or saying there are trade-offs therefore nothing should happen which is what another set of people do that's broadly the argument the last thing I'm going to say before we move on is this is a paper about labour market regulation principally yeah there's loads of other things that matter for low-paid workers about how they're treated, and those are about and regulation. Lots of things can't deal with lots of those things. You can't legislate at a national level. They're to do with the tightness of the labour market, power in the workplace, and other things. And we are going to be coming back to those in other reports. So I don't want people to think that we don't think those are important, but it's not our focus today. 
what is our focus is whatever Alan's got to say. Alan. I was going to say some of what you've just said. Sorry. So am I allowed to do that? <laughs> Go. Yes. Okay. Go. Um, well, thank you very much for this report. Even though I am supposed to know about this stuff every year, I get this report and I learn something, something new. So um, always kind of uh, look forward to it. I'm going to say uh, a bit about the sort of the minimum wage and then about these sort of other aspects of, of quality of work. Um, now, in terms of the minimum wage, I mean, I think this has been a success story so clearly in a way that often other things are kind of hard to decide their success stories, but this has been a huge success story in the UK. Um, and the question, one of the questions is, can we, can we go still, um, sorry, can we go still um, further? And the report suggests that perhaps we should you know, keep on pressing on, seeing as we haven't got any clear uh, negative effects. And, you know, do I think that's a good idea or not? I think my answer is that I don't know. I'm not sure that's the virtuoso display of expert knowledge you were looking Try harder. For. <laughs> um, I mean, I've always been in favour of the minimum wage, um, and I've also been surprised about how far you, we seem to have been able to push the minimum wage without any very clear adverse effects on, on employment. Um, I think we sort of are at the point where we, you know, we don't really know whether there are any employment effects or not. We're, when we're evaluating some fairly small year-on-year -year changes and people say we find no significant negative effects, well, that, there's actually quite a wide kind of margin of error. So I think when you sort of reach the top of the, the hill and you're in the fog, you've been on the top of the hill in fog many times, Torsten, have you? Uh, last week, yes. Hailstorms mainly was last week's um, um, You know, you, you, it's very hard to know that you're at the top of the hill, basically. Um, and so we sometimes don't, we, we sort of exaggerate the role that I think research can play in, in, in deciding this. But the UK is now, you know, heading towards a really, by international standards, a very high minimum wage. I mean, often one comparison is with France. But one reason why the headline comparison, I think, is a little bit misleading is that we have pretty flat payroll taxes across the pay distribution, and France doesn't. So from the perspective of an employer, the cost of a minimum wage worker relative to the average, a worker on average earnings in the UK is actually much higher in the UK than it is in France even, even now. Um, and you know, often we just see things from the perspective of the worker. And that's because France basically does, has zero payroll taxes on minimum wage workers and very high payroll taxes on um, the average worker. Because we just do it for the part-time workers. We just do it for the part-time workers, yeah. We encourage part-time work. Um, so, um, so on the minimum wage, I, I sort of feel a little bit, perhaps we do need to refocus away towards the other aspects of quality work that you know was talked about i totally agree where what we should be doing on on sick pay i totally agree that we need to be thinking about ways in which we can ensure that the stability of incomes which is ultimately what is going to matter to um, many low paid workers than stability of the hourly wage, which is what the minimum wage does. And, you know, I'm, I'm sort of less clear in my own mind about what the best way to do that. But I also think that, and this sort of is what Torsten said it's going to talk about in other things, we do need to think about wider aspects of the quality of work, and which has been neglected. And I think it's been neglected for a number of reasons. 
The first is it's very, you know, the quality of work is very, very multidimensional in a way that the, min, the hourly wage is not. And so it's kind of quite complicated. What are the things that we should be considering? Often kind of what is a good thing for one person is a bad thing for another person. And, you know, so it's, it's not clearly, we think, every worker wants higher hourly wages, but we're not quite so sure about hours flexibility. Some workers may like that. Some, you know, really, really hate that. Um, so it's sort of multidimensional. It's kind of hard to measure. Um, you know, so we're getting better at it because people are paying more attention to it, but it's still, you know, pretty much in its infancy. And even once you've decided what you want to measure and measured it, the lever that you actually pull to have some influence on it is quite hard. So, I mean, what Torsten mentioned here is this is about sort of top-down regulation. But a lot of this stuff is not really amenable at all to top-down regulation. I think if you want to address it, it's got to be sort of bottom-up. And in terms of sort of bottom-up mechanisms, I tend to think of it's quite useful to think in terms of, you know, Hirschman, the way Hirschman thought about things in terms of exit, voice, and, and loyalty. Um, and exit is about having a hot, tight, labor market, so low-paid workers have got options that if your employer treats you badly, well, you can leave relatively easily. So that's kind of really important. Um, voice is important, is that you can actually um, have a way to, you know, get grievances addressed um, in, a, in an effective, uh, effective way. Um, so, I mean, just to give one specific example, the OECD had a report last year on what they call job strain. And um, one interesting thing about it, which is a bit surprising, is that the countries with the lowest level of job strain were sort of Norway, Denmark, and Finland. And you thought, no surprises there. And then the UK, um, which was kind of more surprising, actually. But it did pretty well on it um, compared to every other European country. I'm not quite sure whether that's true or not, but that's what that uh, study said. But they also talked about what are the drivers of job satisfaction and the single most important driver of job satisfaction was intimidation and discrimination at work which is basically about being treated well or badly at a sort of personal kind of level so voice is about having a way that if you feel you're being treated badly that you can address that and finally there's kind of loyalty which is obviously a sort of a two-way thing there are high levels of loyalty um, these studies show of workers to their employers actually many of them feel pretty positively about the work that they're doing I think we don't I suspect there may be rather less in the way of loyalty from managers to to the workers and we don't actually have I think very much information on, on, on that at all. So that's what I would say. I think perhaps my feeling is that it, it is perhaps a time to reorient a bit away from the minimum wage and uh, these things towards these other things, but acknowledging that that's actually um, probably a bit harder to do. Very good. Thank you very much, Alan. It's a good reminder that everything in work like life is complicated. Um, Sarah. Good, right. Um, great report. Thank you. It's really nice to have people agreeing with what I feel like I've been sort of banging the drum on a long time, which is like the minimum wage is just one lever and it's, it's just such a narrow lever to try and achieve everything you want to achieve in the labour market. Um, and that while it's been a great success, you know, we can't kind of close our eyes to the fact that 
as you say in this report, a lot of low-paid workers' job satisfaction has actually gone down in spite of the fact that their, that their hourly pay has been going up. Um, so I wanted to say three quick things. The first would be, I mean, I, I think you're, you're right to kind of draw out this often kind of invisible, I think, to people who are on the kind of um, white-collar side of the labour market, these sort of invisible differences in the way work actually is. And I think in some ways it's even worse than the example that you gave there. So you were saying, you know, people who would have to kind of leave work for an emergency, would they get paid or not? I mean, you know, for a lot of workers, it's even a question of whether you can leave work in an emergency. You know, particularly like if you're, on an, if you're an agency worker and you're on a production line and you need to leave work, I mean, no one's going to physically kind of chain you to the production line, but you, you might well just not get a call back again. You know, there are people are constantly having to make these decisions about like, what, what's the right thing for my family and my responsibilities versus am I going to get any work tomorrow or next week? How long will I be punished through lack of shifts for kind of making this decision? So I think, I think it is quite acute. And also, I mean, to that point, there's also sort of quite stark inequalities even within low-paid workers or low-paid workplaces. So, you know, for example, between permanent workers and agency workers, you know, um, real life example, Ready Meals factory in Sheffield. If the production line um, has to stop in the middle of the night because there's a problem or, you know, an order hasn't come through or something, the permanent workers will be asked to just do some cleaning or something until the end of their shift in the morning. They'll still be paid for the rest of the shift. The agency workers are just sent to the canteen to sleep for a few hours. They can't go home because there are no buses until the morning. So they're just lying there trying to sleep on canteen tables you know, until the first bus at six, and they're not getting paid for that time. So, you know, even within those people who are working side by side doing the exact type of work, you know, actually their conditions of work are, are really quite different. Um, so I think it's great that we're paying attention to these things. Um, you know, on your suggestions, sick pay, you know, a no-brainer from my point of view. And I think, you know, I find it really quite shocking that this wasn't really um, something that was addressed during COVID. It was a little bit. But, you know, I think COVID gave us a really clear demonstration of why this matters not just for people, but for, like, public health, right? I mean, there were studies done of care homes across the country, and the ones that had the higher proportion of workers who, were, who only had statutory sick pay didn't have proper, proper sick pay, they had higher rates of COVID transmission. You know, it's obvious. If you're, if you're not going to get paid, you're more likely to sort of hope for the best and not take a test and go into work. Um, so even though we had a demonstration of, of why this matters, just in terms of like transmitting diseases around the country, we still didn't really return to it, which was, which was really strange to me. Um, on the scheduling thing, I mean, I think this is difficult to do, but it is worth looking in the US now that some states are trying these fair scheduling laws, which are kind of similar to what... Yeah. Nye has suggested, and there have been some early studies done. Now, admittedly, I think that the studies have been done by academics who really want, who really want these laws to work. Um, but they do seem, and they're quite small studies, so take them with a pinch of salt, but they do seem to suggest that they're working pretty well. So it's a similar sort of thing, like employers can still have flexibility to change shifts at the last minute because they need that, but, but you have to pay for that privilege, um, which I think is fair. You know, if someone is offering to be flexible, then they should they should have a premium for that. Um, but in terms of like the, the well-being of workers, it seems to be having quite a, quite a good effect. So I think that's definitely something worth pursuing. Um, the third thing I want to come on to, and actually it, it tallies with what Alan was just saying about the things that regulation can't do. I know you don't want to get massively into this, but actually I think it is relevant because my sense is some of these things that people are really unhappy about 
are probably linked to the rising minimum wage because I think as the minimum wage has gone up, you know, yes, it's sort of fed through a bit to prices and to profits and to productivity. But I think it's also a lot of employers have coped with the rising minimum wage by stripping out other things, stripping out other labour costs. And that has a really kind of profound effect sometimes on how you experience your job. Now, I'm not saying that's the only reason these things have happened. Maybe employers would have done it anyway. But I'll give you like a, 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 an example, which I think kind of highlights some of the things that Alan was talking about. So I was interviewing a casino worker recently. So she's a, she's a dealer. So it's actually quite a skilled job. It's not a minimum wage job. She's been doing it for 16 years in a seaside town in the UK. And she was saying that over the last sort of five to 10 years, her job has just sort of changed beyond all recognition for the worse. So even though her, her pay has been going up, they used to have a hot dinner. It's been taken away. They don't have a hot dinner anymore. They used to have 30 minutes to eat it, a sit-down, hot, free meal. Now they have a 20-minute break from which they have to eat their own cold sandwiches that they've brought in. Um, they used to get premiums after midnight. She works the night shift, so she works from like 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. All the premiums have gone. They used to get double pay on like Christmas. All of that's gone. No premiums for bank holidays either. Um, she goes home at 4am and she doesn't drive. It used to be they had a driver who would drive the workers home. After that, they would at least pay for a taxi. After that, they had an arrangement with a taxi company where they would get half price taxis. Now that's gone. So she has to pay full price for a taxi to get home, which means she has the, the final hour that she works. She's basically working for free just so that she can get home at night. She can't walk because, you know, she said the environment is becoming sketchier, people seem to be sort of more stressed, there's more mental health problems in this seaside town, so it's kind of a frightening place to be on your own as a woman at 4am, so she has to take the taxi. Um, so to, to Alan's point about, you know, exit or voice or loyalty, you know, I said to her, like, this sounds dreadful and you sound really unhappy, why don't you just leave? Um, and it's not that easy, because even though we all know this is quite a tight labour market, it's not really a tight labour market everywhere. It's not a particularly tight labour market in this seaside town where there's only one casino. So there is no other place you can go to do the job that she's been trained to do, which is to be a dealer. Um, she does the night shift, which actually kind of works for her because she wants to be able to take her daughter to school in the morning. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the casino kind of has monopsony power, as Alan would call it, over these over these workers. And I said to her, well, what about a union, you know? And I think her response to this was quite telling because she clearly, she, she clearly kind of saw the role of unions as to defend things, you know, as a way of stopping things from getting worse. And she said, Sarah, there's no point in starting a union now. They've taken everything away already. We, you know, we've got nothing left to lose. So what's the point? So she didn't really see a union as something that could make progress. It was more, and, and I think that's kind of indicative maybe of what's of what the experience of um, trade unions has been over the last 10, 20 years, is they've, they've sort of defended conditions where they can, but I don't think people have seen places in which unions have been making strides in the opposite direction. Um, so I will leave that with you. Um, now, clearly, we're not going to like write a law that says everyone has to have a hot dinner at 2 a.m. or everyone has to have a free taxi. Like These are the kind of like fine details that you can't legislate for. But I think it's relevant to this conversation because I think some of this stuff is probably linked to the, the rising minimum wage. And the last thing I'd say on that is differentials matter. So as the floor has gone up, her premium to the minimum wage has gone down. So she, you know, she said to me, like, you know, I've been doing this for 16 years and I'm getting paid 50p above the minimum wage. And that makes her feel really devalued. So I think that's another issue that we're starting to see with the minimum wage now is that these, as the floor rises, everyone who's above it is getting closer to it. And that 
and that makes people feel cross and less valued, but it also causes problems for employers in terms of retention, I think. Very good. Thank you very much indeed, Sarah. Right, there's loads of great um, food for thought for us to return to. So we've got about um, 40 minutes. So why don't we try and cover where we are now, what's been going on, uh, what next priorities, choices between different areas, and then some tr some trade-offs so we can kind of get into like why it's difficult rather than easy. Um, if you want to ask questions, again, hashtag is good work on Slido, or you can do this if you're in the room, then, and we'll try and get through those. If you can target your hand up to the what's happening now, what next, trade-offs, you get like extra points, but you know, we're quite liberal, so I'm not gonna ban you from doing that. There's some hands going up. So incredibly disciplined people here. So let's, but let's, before we go into those, let's start with one question for, well, Alan, why don't you take this first and then Sarah, but why on earth aren't we getting bunching at the minimum wage? Like, so someone, we've got a great, someone's actually raised this question um, uh, on here. There we go, if I can bring it up, there we go, right. Why are we not? So we all, when, when the national living wage was announced back in 2015, everybody said this is going to make a big difference. Okay, it's going to raise wages a lot at the bottom, and it is definitely going to lead to a huge increase in the number share of workers on the minimum wage and bunching amongst. So the, the squashing the differentials that Sarah's talking about. And it's definitely seen some of that, but it is far less than any of the modelling suggested back in like. I mean, there's no rise going on at all in the percentage of workers on the minimum wage. That is quite staggering, given that we've never seen the increase is massive in the last seven years to the minimum wage. So come on, Alan, unfairly, what on earth is going on? And why were we all wrong? Yeah, well, my considered answer is, is, is that I don't know. Um, <laughs> you are being very bold today. You're like, <laughs> going out on a limb left, right and centre. No, I mean, this is something that I think, I, you know, I would say, you know, I've been surprised by, in a mechanical sense, what if we think that there are there have not been very dramatic employment effects, um, is that workers, you know, the employers have tried to maintain differentials to some extent. They probably, almost certainly, eroded, um, and so people who, some people who would have, uh, we would have thought, would be caught up by the national living wage, but they, the employers push them up about it. So that, in a mechanical sense, has happened. Um, you know, the, the other possibility is that we have been, you know, underestimating some negative employment effects in the sense that, um, you know, in the, in the classic sort of model of the labour market, not my preferred model, um, when you sort of have a minimum wage, basically everyone below that sort of disappears from employment and you don't see any bunching at the minimum wage um, at all. Um, so that is, you know, it's, the, it's some combination of, um, of, of those two things. Um, I mean, I think the employment effects, if they exist, are not, probably can't explain all of this because we'd be having to be talk about really very dramatic effects on the employment rates of, of, yeah. um, of, of the affected workers. Um, but then possible there's, there's kind of a little bit, but otherwise it's got to be mostly these employers correcting differentials. Yeah. I mean, who pays for that? Um, is not, you know, is not entirely clear. I think probably it's sort of pushing, a lot of it is pushing into, into prices as was hinted at at the end. What do you reckon? Um, yeah, I think it's just because employers really know that differentials matter. And if you're running a workforce, you, you have to maintain them. And that's, you know, what I remember when George Osborne started to kind of really ramp up the national living wage. 
I was talking to employers about how they would cope and um, they were really cross and part of the reason they were, not all of them were cross, but the ones that were cross were saying, you don't understand, it's not just the people at the bottom we're going to have to bump up. We have to bump up. I can't have, you know, like a line manager on the same um, hourly rate as, as, a, as a new hire. And, they, and the other thing that they did that I think people maybe didn't expect was that they mostly kind of bumped up the younger ones as well even where they didn't have to because there was a lower rate. And I think, you know, there's sometimes a kind of perception that all employers are, are kind of like brutal capitalists. And this is maybe, you know, a reminder that they're not like, I think a lot of employers felt there was a sense of fairness there. You know, they didn't want people doing the same job on different rates of pay. They just didn't think that was right. And similarly, they, they knew that for like, in terms of progressing people, persuading people to take on roles that have more responsibility, you kind of have to maintain those differentials to a certain extent. But I do think, I do think they've become squeezed and I do think that that has, is beginning to be a problem for lots of people. Just to push us on, it's a problem because you were quite worried about that. So it's happened less than we thought, but it's definitely happened. And, and I've done some work previously, which maybe you can tell us about in a second, on which differentials have got squeezed occupations and others. It's definitely different between different parts of the labour market, but it's less than we thought. And stepping back, if the, if the purpose, the, minimum, the living wage is being set to bring the bottom up towards the middle, right? Yeah. So squeezing the differentials, reducing inequality between the bottom and the middle. It's is, by design. It's literally yeah. the purpose of the policy. And yeah. the fact that people are upset about it reflects that the inequality was higher before. People don't like change, obviously. But if it was going the other way, we'd all be like, look, it's awful. The gap's getting bigger between these occupations. So how much, like, on balance, how big is your anxiety? Because that came across as quite a big anxiety on differentials, but isn't that just what we, that's literally what the policy was aiming to do? Yeah, no, you're right. It is what the policy is aiming to do. It is trying to compress the distance between the, the middle yeah. and the bottom. But I think you have to accept that that makes it quite difficult to run a workforce sometimes. And also that it makes it, that people really, you know, individual workers think about these things a lot. They know what the minimum wage is, they know where they are, and they have a sense of fairness over whether that's okay or not, given their level of experience, their number of years, their qualifications, etc. Yeah. Every focus group you do with lower earners, people will raise the, I'll only get 50p an hour. There's no point in me getting promoted to a junior manager role. I'll get a load of stress and I'll get 50p an hour. Why on earth would I like do that? I can just have, I can have my more flexible role. I can not have people shouting at me and I can just earn basically the same amount of money. And if you're on universal credit, then it's almost exactly the same amount of money. They're like basically right there. So that comes up all the time and doesn't get discussed in policy things much. The, um, what about on this... You all kind of raise this, but on this, like one thing I took away from reading Nice report and others is how different the lived experience of work is between lower and higher earners. And obviously that's true in terms of how well off you are, which is the thing we focus on when we're showing inequality measures. But I don't know, which is the bit where your kind of flexibility, sick pay, where's the like, the, any bit surprised you in terms of how big the differentials between high and low earners are? Um, and do we think people know that? <clears throat> Do we think higher earners know that the stuff they take for granted just doesn't exist for loads of other people? I don't know which was surprised. So the sick pay was sort of known because the TUC did a helpful survey last year. But we, we also in the report gathered data on parental pay. So, you know, what do you get for how long do you get the 90% replacement and for how long do you have to deal with the £150, that kind of stuff. So I think I expected to see that shape in all of the charts. Um, in a couple of cases, I don't think there had really been any evidence on it before. Sick pay, there was a TUC survey last year, and, and, uh, and when we were doing this analysis in COVID, we were, we were relying on a DWP survey from 2014. So I think it was quite useful to add a bit to that um, evidence base. I think maybe the everyday flexibility chart that I started with was, was the most surprising, because I think I would 
know, just reflecting on my own experience, if, I, you know, if that was how I had to exist at work, I think I'd find that very difficult. So why you should all come work at the Resolution Foundation? Right, it's a question from the gentleman at the back. There you go, the mic's on. Thank you. It's uh, Patrick Craven from uh, City and Guilds. And apologies now, because I haven't read the report yet, so it might go into some of this detail, I don't know. But one of the thoughts that occurred to me, and you touched on it with your final slide, and it has been touched on a little bit with some of the references to sectors, is we did some work looking at um, differential across different sectors called Great Jobs around about the time of the pandemic, where we shone a light on the fact that what we identified as a nation as key workers, all of a sudden post-pandemic has seemed to sort of like drift into the morass of actually they're struggling to attract work and workers, etc. Is now the time, do you think, to start to look at a bit of that nuance across sectors, where actually not all sectors are necessarily dealt the same hand in terms of the flexibilities and the differentials? You know, the, the employer you mentioned in the seaside town just sounds like a poor employer with very little competition, to be absolutely honest, and might not be indicative of all casino employers. So, do you get what I mean in terms of those things that you put up in terms of a list? Is every sector dealt the same hand in terms of what they they Thank can you. fluctuate? Nigel, you want to come in on that? Um, yeah, clearly, you know, you have very differing experiences across sectors. The one I would highlight would be the care sector, uh, not least because I wrote a report on it quite recently, which I'll point you all towards. Um, but in that report, I, you know, going into that report, I knew there were you know, issues of low pay and I knew there was tough work, but it wasn't until I spent three months um, researching it and talking to the workers that you realise all the specific things that are difficult about jobs in that sector. Uh, and that includes uh, you know, issues of underpayment due to travel time, um, the fact that the mileage reimbursements they get haven't been you know, uprated in line with inflation, all those kind of very specific things. So yes, it's always good to look at the specifics and, and, and avoid drawing. Uh, you know, big picture charts when you can. I definitely agree. Alan, on, so if we were going back to this debate a while back, people would have said, um, by people, I mean kind of people like us-ish, um, in the economics world would have said, particularly if they were coming from the left, would have said, well, if they come from the left, they would have said, um, it's really important to get a tight labour market. That, in the end, is what's going to drive up standards across the board, including in stuff you can't regulate for you've hinted at. People from the right would have said, that's what you should be doing anyway, focus on employment, not on the wage rates, then let people bargain for it and, you know, don't fiddle with the wage rates broadly. Um, I mean, less so today, but definitely last summer, we've had like the tightest labour market anyone has experienced. Um, in the US, you're definitely seeing that feeding through into changed world, particularly for low earners. In the UK, you definitely got people reporting shortages. There was like a pub I was trying, I tried to go to a pub last week up in Cumbria. I could not get into the pub due to the pub being shut for, for staffing reasons, right? Now it was in the middle of nowhere, so you know, the sheep were lambing, I don't know. But like, still, it was shut completely. So do you, do we think, where are you on like the, the, how, the role of the tightness of the labour market for low earners? Because one thing, it is very tight, but when we do focus with low earners, one thing people say is, they could leave their job, right? So they're not off, off. There's some people who are like, there is no other job, right? And that's particularly for low earning women in particularly isolated parts of the country. But lots of people, they could take another job. They just don't think the other job will be any better. So they think exit will be, it's not they can't exit, it's that they think exit won't, won't make any difference is basically what they say, which is, a, which is odd because, you know, why is the labour market not operating like a market? Yeah. So 
I mean, I, I mean, my view is that I mean, when you have a tight labour market, this put does put upward pressure on pay and other terms and conditions. But there are some sectors in which that sort of pressure sort of results in those things actually happening, and other sectors in which, for a variety of reasons, it doesn't happen. Social care would be, you know, a classic example. And when it doesn't happen, you seem to get not much on wage growth, and even worse shortages tied to labour market. So that sort of throws your correlation off, basically. Um, having said that, I think when we get to the non-wage stuff, this is where it gets sort of very difficult because it's very easy if you're considering a new job to see what they're going to offer you in terms of pay, hourly pay. may not be very easy to see what they're going to offer you in terms of guaranteed hours. They may have some sort of words about what happened, yeah. but actually working out what would actually happen but might be hard to know, and all the softer stuff about whether the manager's nice or horrible and so on. Yeah. And so this fact that people think, well, better the devil I know, perhaps means that that, you know, that mechanism of people changing jobs to drive up conditions is not as strong as we would like. Yeah. And they definitely say that on flexibility. I don't particularly love this job, but I know I've got this flexibility. I don't know. I might get it if I move job, but I don't know if I'll get it. I need specifically this work pattern, these hours, and that comes up again and again as like a barrier to moving, and that is a... But I'm not sure how that's a hard one to... So now are you going to come in? No? Great, okay. Let's move on to what we do next. Okay, the... Um, um, so there's lots of things here. So let's do minimum wage first, where there's a few questions. So there's two here. So one is... So why don't you take this one first of all, which is basically... How about what, we, what about regional minimum wages rather than just national minimum wages? Basically, from Tim, should the minimum wage be higher in areas where living costs and median wages are higher? Yay or nay? I'm going to say nay. Right, very good. See, Alan, what she did there was answer the question. <laughs> Do you see? That one. Okay, I'm, I'm coming back to it, but she gave an answer and it was simple. Go. <laughs> anything, anything more? Anything more than nay? Uh, Any reasons, for example? <laughs> like, too complicated, a lot of fine-tuning. If you start there, where do you stop? I mean, within a region, there are, like, huge disparities. You know, if you look at, like, Blackpool next to Lytham St Anne's, like, I just, you know, when you start going down that road, I think it becomes really difficult. You start creating weird incentives for employers to locate in one place and not the other. Um, I think the experience... I mean, people worried about the regional stuff when, we, when the minimum wage here started going up quite a lot. Um, and that the bite was going to be very, very high in some areas. But I think the experience has been that it's been broadly fine. Go on, Alan, have a go. Yay or nay? No. I, mean, no. I, I, I agree. And I, honestly, that really is what I would have said anyway. <laughs> um, so I agree with everything that you know, Sarah said about, for the reasons. And, and I just put, perhaps put in one. I just don't like the idea of institutionalising certain parts of the UK as low wage Ooh. in a way that this kind of thing would sort of do. I add another reason, this is dangerously consensus, which is if you ask people why they like the national minimum wage, fairness comes up, right, except for the people having the differential squeeze, but people are like, it's a good thing. There's widespread support for it. It's not just that economists think it's successful. It's a very popular policy. The national bit is surprisingly important in why it's popular. People will say that. It's everywhere, it's fair. There's a minimum floor for the whole country. Remember, people hate postcode lotteries. They hate them. Public services, they hate them everywhere. So for the public consent for it, I think it actually probably is quite an important deal, even though like, it's definitely you could definitely see politicians flirting with like a higher London minimum wage, be popular in London, less popular for 
the nation as a whole. Right, okay, that's on that. Then let's do age on the minimum wage because you touched, uh, someone else touched on this, but the, it's true that at the moment, you, the age discrimination you can do on wages is basically in the minimum wage uh, setting. Lots of firms <coughs> said, particularly initially, they didn't do it. Right, so they gave everybody the higher minimum, not just those who were over 25 plus. Um, but there's some evidence, I mean, you, and I showed you a chart where people still behave below the minimum wage. Some of those are legally, some of them are not legally. So Nai, what do, we, what do we reckon? How much do you want to go down to young people rather than just whacking up the rate? And remind people what's already happened on the ages. So I'm sure you all know, but the policy, so the, the national living wage was introduced for workers age 25 and above. Uh, in 2016, the, the current policy is to reduce that age threshold down to 21. We made it down to 23 in 2021. And then uh, I can't remember if that is happening next year or in 2024, but 2024, thank you very much. Um, so we will be heading down to 21. So we, we will have a, a simpler system. Um, and that is something that employers uh, tend to favor. As to, you know, should you have youth rates at all? Uh, it's obviously a difficult question because you can, you know, you can think of some employment settings where it's hard to believe that a young person contributes much less than an older person, and therefore the pay difference is, is hard to justify. But you can think of others where you know there might plausibly be a productivity differential, and therefore having the same wage floor for everyone, you know, you might you might get bigger effects for young people. So I don't think it's an easy question, but I do broadly agree with the idea of, 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 of having youth rates. And I think, you know, when employers don't think it makes sense, they, they don't use them in, in, in broad terms. So that's why I'm sort of happy enough to have them, but it is a bit uncomfortable. And there, remember there are no, like 16 and 17 year olds just aren't working anymore in Britain in a way that they were even when I was a kid, right? Like pubs won't hire a 17 year old on that. And it's not minimum wage only. They are a bit now. There's a bit, there's some movement, the there's been some movement recently, yeah, that's true, but, there's, but the underlying thing is, one, one of my favourite facts is, is the Britain has got a record level of people who have never worked, right? We've got record employment levels nearly, leaving aside the pandemic, right? High employment levels, low workless rates amongst households, despite what people like to say about the feckless, workless and all that nonsense, but record numbers of people who have never worked, and the reason is because people don't work as teenagers and then bad stuff happens to them, they get ill or whatever, right? And that didn't used to happen. Everybody did some work and then life got complicated. They, um, but we now have record numbers who have never worked. And it's basically because young people don't work around education anymore, whether that's good or bad. You know, I'm all for people getting in the pub and working, but apparently that's a prejudice rather than anything. Alan, you're, you're right for, getting, for keeping some youth rates? Um, yeah, I think there are two ways of seeing this. One is to focus on, well, the, the minimum wage is lower for young people. But the other way of looking at it is that having a higher minimum wage for older people and actually the roots of the national living wage policy were in a resolution foundation a good plugging there it's much better for you to say that than us um it was before your time that's good that's good um, why did you go and ruin it um and you know so what was the argument for having a higher minimum wage for the over 25s so i'll just rehearse those it's the labor market their labor market can support a higher minimum wage because there really is a big very big difference in average earnings between teenagers and people 25 plus, that's one argument. Secondly, we're more worried about 
young older workers being on the minimum wage than say teenage students that perhaps we're not that worried about as a society much more likely that older workers um, uh, on the minimum wage have dependents and so if you think poverty is bad child poverty is is worse and so those were the arguments put forward for saying actually from a position of there were some age differences but relatively modest, we're actually going to raise the minimum wage for the over 25. And of course then people come around and then say, oh well that's terribly unfair on the younger workers, we need to re, you know, undo all of that and that's sort of what we've done in considerable parts. But of course then one can just present the old arguments again that actually we should go back to having a higher rate, yet higher rate for the over 25s. Okay, consensus that we're quite chilled. Right, let's do. Let's go on for the minimum wage to two other things. So let's do self-employment. So now, why don't you take this one, which is everything we've talked about so far is about employees. Lots of the regulation we're talking about applies to employees. Britain has fifteen percent of its workforce who are self-employed. The um, now, what do you reckon? Are we assess the extent of it? No, because I mean, I'd love to. You'd have to do a very, a very um, you know very detailed survey work to really dig into the very specific nature of, of those jobs. Um, I would really like to do it, I don't, but it's just not really possible with the, um, you know, with the data we have at the moment. But if anyone fancies uh, a chat afterwards, then, uh, then please do. Um, you know, we, we, obviously, the fact that these things are happening in the courts tells you that there is bogus self-employment uh, going on. Um, but the scale of it, you know, is, is, is really hard to know. It's just, you know, just because we don't have, you know, clear boundaries, essentially, is what is quite hard to know. I looked at um, gig workers in the Understanding Society dataset last year, and there's a complete mix. Some of them consider themselves self-employed. Some of them consider themselves employees. So even within a fairly, you know, small category of self-employment, it's really unclear. So um, no, I don't know. And sorry, the second part of the question. It seems that without solving the problem first you will only aggravate low pay in this demographic. Um, I'm not sure. Well, so yes, yes, I, I take the point that yes, if you, if you don't have that clear boundary and a clear way of enforcing it, then yes, if you raise the minimum wage, you, you might push some more people uh, into that. So yeah, that is a point well taken. But that's why we also um, you know, talk about in the report saying, you know, at the moment we have a tax structure which, which pushes people in that direction. And I think that should change. Thank you. Um, so yeah, one second. Well, so Sarah, just on this. So this says bogus self-employment, but like whether it's bogus or not, just self-employment is almost certainly higher than it would otherwise be because of a higher minimum wage, particularly in a system that allows that. What should we do about that? How how important is that versus the others? Um, yeah. So now you mentioned the gig economy and gig platforms, and I think they're kind of relevant in this debate because my sense is, you know, I think there's a tendency from some on the left in particular, to sort of see everyone who's working for a gig platform as, as sort of a dupe. And so, oh, you've ended up being bogusly self-employed um, or you're just, you know, desperate and you can't get any other kind of job and this is what you've ended up doing. Um, and actually, you know, I talk to quite a lot of gig workers in the course of my job and the thing that comes up most often, I mean, I'm not in any way um, in support of the gig platforms um, sort of narrative that that this is all kind of wonderful entrepreneurship but people genuinely a lot of people have gone into that because they want the flexibility and it goes back to what Nye was saying right at the start about you know do you have the ability to take some time off in an emergency you know um, those kinds of things and particularly like if you're a couple with kids um, and you're both doing low-paid 
employee jobs that that are basically very demanding that dictate your schedules to you that maybe don't give you a lot of notice of your shifts it's really difficult to manage childcare it's really difficult to manage unexpected things like a school strike or whatever it might be so actually having one of you at least that can work or not work you know and make their own decisions about that it's it's, it's kind of very useful when you as a family are trying to figure out how to make life um sort of livable um so i think that some of the movement into self-employment is probably a reflection of that that a lot of the other options are so kind of demanding or inflexible in some way well um just take the lens out and uh, uh, to the economy 2030 inquiry because um it's one of the questions you raise um in your work which is one of the reasons for comparatively low um UK kind of investment in share of GDP um, uh, is that actually employers prefer low-wage jobs to investment. So it's the car wash story. You know, you know, we don't invest in any car wash kit because we can pay people, and so you get teams of three, four, five people working in a car wash. And um, Norway, you only get one, and you pay them um, <coughs> twice the average wage. So, you know. Um, that doesn't even be working. I mean, if, 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 if the minimum on your ratios, you know, if, if, as the, we, we move towards being one of the higher uh, OECD countries with a high minimum wage, you know, there seems to be no impact at all on that trade-off. I wonder if there is or if looking in the wrong place or what you think. I'm going to shamelessly use that to plug an event for next week. Because today, uh -huh. we're, so today we're talking, and then I'll answer some of the questions, but today we're talking about what labour market rules should be, right, and minimum standards. They only matter if they're enforced, right? They actually apply in every case. We've got a big conference next week on labour market enforcement. And just as an anecdote, I was walking past a car wash on Sunday. Uh, I was hanging out a bit because, you know, I'm quite sad and liked, I'm interested in the same anecdotes as you. I mean, there's no way the law was being, there's no way the minimum, I was just like, you know, there's no way the minimum wage is being paid to people working in that car wash. I mean, they were separately washing a lot of drug dealers' cars, but that's like, that's the police rather than the labour market enforcement problem. But like, definitely the labour market rules were not being enforced in, in any meaningful way. So that you've got to enforce as well as set rules, and that's what determines people's capital versus labour uh, choices in some bits. That's a pretty fringe bit of the labour market, obviously, in other bits. Sarah? No, that's exactly what I was going to say. I think that's, you know, the car wash problem is not, it's not about the minimum wage. Um, it's about people not paying the minimum wage and our state being kind of unable, seemingly, to force them to. No. So why don't you take that as a broader boosting productivity? If we raise the minimum wage and these labour standards yeah. more generally, how much can we go for the confident kind of Martin Sambu answer, which is it will raise investment levels by pushing firms to choose more capital-intensive and less labour-intensive business models? I mean, I think from the perspective of you know, the economy as a whole, minimum wage workers are just not important enough, really, to have big effects on, on aggregate productivity, really, even if these mechanisms kind of do work. And then you might say, well, we might hope to see, you know, in particular sectors where minimum wage workers are more important, some kind of effect. But that becomes harder and harder. You know, the smaller the group you look at, the harder it is to, to sell. To say, I mean, I think, I mean, I think the Low Pay Commission tried to look at sort of productivity effects and couldn't really find very much. But whether that's because they're not there or just they're very hard to find is, is a little bit yeah. unclear. I think. I think the LPC report found that kind of rather than 
going for sort of the good productivity of you know more investment in technology or working practices, uh, we'd ended up with a sort of intensification of work. So basically, just pushing people to work faster, work harder, which you know you might squeeze some extra productivity out of people, but it comes at it comes at a cost, and some of those costs are the things that we've just talked about. Yeah, I think that's actually really important because people, again, generally from the left, keep writing these pieces at the moment saying we need to refocus our productivity strategy on the low-earning everyday economy sectors rather than trying to drive national productivity growth from our tradable high-value services and manufacturing sectors. There's a plausibility problem with that, but let's park that, which is the maths doesn't add up, as in you can't get enough productivity from them, even if you get very fast growth. But that isn't the real problem. The real problem is almost certainly that will come with a fall in job satisfaction and an increase in intensification for lower earners. We are very nervous about that. There's other reasons why you should improve the everyday economy, like providing good jobs and good work for a wider share of the population. But doing it for productivity reasons, I think it brings with it some big risks too. I mean, I wouldn't say almost certainly, but definitely. I mean, maybe the pressure hasn't been strong enough yet that employers have had to think about those more fundamental and imaginative changes. But also, you know, I think it's easy to, to sort of imagine that there's a robot out there that can you know, help someone get out of bed or pick strawberries. But the truth is that there isn't, you know, technology is not actually as good in some of these areas as you might think it is, and particularly in some of these more kind of physical um, jobs. Right, let's do a challenge this whole report, which is say this says, here's some priorities for improving, providing good work. Another, and here's how you can regulate for some of them. Um, and another approach, drawing on actually several of the comments all of you have made, is the underlying problem is that British management is rubbish. That manifests itself as a bad time for people being managed by those rubbish managers, either because they just get more intense routes to improving things, or they're just not very nice, or they like, you know, they just don't manage well, and that's a really unpleasant experience for people, which does show up in surveys. And because rubbish managers in general don't support investment, they don't they, they invest less, they do less other things that make your economy richer. And actually, the real problem is bad management, not our labour market regulation being a lot softer than that in other European countries. So let's just focus on improving the quality of management. The real issue is not Parliament acts, but better business schools or something. Alan? Um, I don't know about better business schools. The LSE doesn't have a business school, so I guess okay. I have to say that. Large. <laughs> um, well, so good. You could have used it as a hatchet job on everyone else's business okay. schools while you were... Um, but I mean, I think, and, and often it's sort of not, you know, management is at level, le lots of levels, from the sort of executive suite down to sort of the yeah. line managers who are only paid, you know, 50p more than the minimum wage sometimes. I mean, I do think the quality of that is very variable and often it's quite amateurish. I suspect there's a lot of bad bosses who are not really treating workers not particularly well, but aren't really generating much extra money for, for their companies. And I, so I think generally, um, you know, this is about managing interpersonal relationships, and I think not just at work, but probably more generally, we could be all be probably better at that. It's like better humanity rather than yeah. better management. Okay, that's the hippiest thing you've ever said. <laughs> right. Uh, now, uh, let's do a poll question to take us into about 10 minutes on the trade-offs trauma that is coming. So here you go. You can vote on Slido again. It's hashtag good jobs. So this is setting out an argument, which is you need to put good work at the centre of your economic strategy. Here's some ways to start doing it, but there are other things you'll need to do too. What is the thing that's most likely to stand in the way of any of that happening? By which I mean, obviously, it'd be politics ultimately decides not to do it. But what is the thing that stops politics do it? Is it that we start to see rising unemployment? 
and the substance I and so we start worrying about um, this happen the actual effect on low earners in particular, right? Which is the traditional worry about and in focus in this area. Is it instead that people just get annoyed about the fact they can't have cheap stuff, by which I mainly mean non-tradable services? The, um, uh, there's a great chart in this report you should look at on how much countries can choose the relative price of non-tradable services, hospitality, leisure. That is just a straight, you can just choose. Different countries make different choices, and then those sectors are bigger or smaller as a result. Uh, but is it higher prices? I.e. that basically means the middle and the upper middle class gets just really pissed off when they see that it gets more, they can't go out as often as they were before. And in the end, in, informally, that feeds back through into politics, or they can't get a nanny or whatever they have. They, um, is it something else entirely, so it's some other barrier, or are you a massive optimist and this is all kind of win-win and there's no real trade-offs and we can actually just have all of this and nothing will ever stop it? Alan, what's the biggest, what's the most likely to prevent it? doesn't mean it will. What's the most likely? I'm going to go for the very vague, it's a theme of my comments, there, the other barriers. It's good to be on brand. Uh, um, although I think what you say about, you know, the people at the top of the distribution actually liking their, their lives, which are often built around low skills, low wage, you know, low wage, a lot of low wage work providing services for them. I think the attitudes of that group of people are a problem. Let's give you a really concrete one, which is from Will's question. If we start enforcing the rules so people can't get their car washed for £20 inside and all £15, £10 in some parts of the country, inside and out, uh, will the public think, and they have to go to a machine and it's not quite as good and it's a bit more annoying, will people think, um, that's a good thing because they recognise, or they think, I'm just really pissed off that I've got to wash my own car. Have you seen my hands? They were nice and smooth and now they are riddled with whatever. Where does water do to you? Wrinkly hands. Well, I think you, you already <laughs> see a lot of you know, people I know complaining about you know, the cost of eating out, the cost of getting building work that done and, and so on, but not really realising just how well off they are. they are relative to the average person in the, in the UK. Um, what do you reckon, Sarah? Uh, I was just laughing. You clearly have never washed a car before. I've washed a freaking car. I'm always washing my car. Okay. My hands are filthy from rock climbing anyway. I've got other problems going on. It's the least of my life. Anyway, apart from, apart from uh, laughing at me, what's your view? Sorry. Um, I would say higher prices, but I think, um, I think you're kind of, you've let yourselves off the hook a little bit in this report um, by looking only at sort of hospitality and leisure and, and then using that to say, look, you know, if prices go up, it's prices of things that only the rich really consume, so it'll be fine and it'll be redistributive. I think, um, you know, think about the food chain, for example, where I think the trade-offs feel more acute. So, you know, we, we had some debate around this last summer or the summer before when the, when the HGV drivers mm -hmm. um, shortage uh, really kicked off and then, you know, you saw instantly the, um, the impact of like, okay, we have to pay these drivers a lot more. I think that was exactly what needed to happen because they were massively underpaid um, for what is a very difficult and arduous job. But it does feed through into things like food prices. Similarly, like food manufacturing in this country um, employs a vast number of, maybe not a vast number, employs some of them lowest paid and worst treated workers and, you know, has historically relied on a lot of kind of... Um, migrants from the EU 
not able to do so anymore. So, and, and actually food is something that um, lower paid people spend a much higher proportion of their income on. So I think you can't sort of just wish it away by saying it's fine because it's only going to affect the prices of, of, of things that, that rich people buy. If you look at the inflation figures this morning, 20% inflation for food, so like definitely, yeah. those are definitely things. So the, the report definitely is not trying to say there's, you, and even, if you, even within hospitality and leisure, poor families spend some money on those things. I think that our nudge is more, you've got to think about this from a, what in the end matters for the shape of your economy in the longer term is the relative price of things, right? And so it's, the, it's saying, yes, some food prices will go up. It's like, a, 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 my counter would be, that's a cop out, because you've got to decide what you actually think. Because the, the traditional way of thinking about the minimum wage is, we're going to do it, it's a good thing, and there won't be any employment effect, right? And that's easy for everyone to agree to, and it happens to have gone on for longer than we thought, even if not uh, as clearly as evidenced as we might like. This is saying, okay, if we want to make a bigger material difference to good work, the trade-offs get more real. You've lifted some of them there. They will affect everybody. Net, is that a, net? do you want to do it or not? And our argument is net, the trade-offs will be real, but you, do, you should do it because in the end, if you want a more equal economy you base, and society, you basically have to put up the cost of low-paid labour and the consumption that comes from that. On average, that would be worse for higher earners than lower earners, but everybody's prices go up a bit, but relative prices is what matters, not absolute prices. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with that. Um, but, uh, you know, if you're a politician trying to sell it, I'm, I might not, well, I might not, not come that. out and say, it's going to make food prices more expensive, but it'll be worth it. it. But it will do that. Now, what do you want to go for? I think it, sh it should be unemployment, but yeah, prices seems more likely to be the thing. So we, we devote a fair bit of the reports talking about unemployment risks. And obviously that matters a lot because unemployment makes people miserable, even if you account for the fact that, that um, you know, people's earnings disappear, it still makes them miserable over and above that. So we, we think in the report about what that might mean in terms of how we balance higher wages for the uh, 1.7 million workers on the minimum wage and the five-ish million people whose wages get pushed up by spillovers versus uh, unemployment risk for those groups. So those, those unemployment numbers are you know, important, but they are you know, fairly small. And, they, and, you know, and, the, and the studies that look at these things uh, draw numbers, but actually the, you know, the total numbers still remain fairly small, but they're really important. So I think that should, that should be the thing that we, that we worry about and which should tell us that we've maybe gone far enough. Um, but yes, everyone seems to think that prices is what man. The only other thing to say about prices is that we did that focus group where um, people said, you know, I'm willing to pay more for higher labour standards, or at least some people said, but they just said, I don't want that to be done through individual action. I don't want to be shopping at the more expensive cafe. You know, I don't want to be doing it myself, but I'm happy for someone else to make these things a bit more expensive. Yeah, as soon as someone says to you that like consumer choice is the long term answer to driving up and solving any underlying major problem on fairness or the others, then you know they're basically talking nonsense and don't want anything done. It's like garbage. The public doesn't want it. There's minimal evidence of it having any effects. They want, we societally think there's a problem. Could you please just make it, make the choice collectively and then implement it? It's like, and the focus groups are very clear on that over. In fact, they actively don't want to be asked to make the choice because they're like, I've got to clothe my kids. I don't want to be asked to choose between the slightly better, more ethical clothes and the cheap clothes of the kids because life's difficult enough. Can you please make a decision about what is and isn't an acceptable supply chain? Right, let's bring up the results of the poll to see what you all thought and then we're going to wrap up with one last question for our panel. The, um, well, that's interesting. The, um, now, now it's unfair because I know what... It, does anyone want to offer up what other barriers was that they had in mind? Gentlemen at the back, good. Lucky you're here. Impressive keenness on the hand too. That's what we want. 
I think you were sort of getting into it at the end there, Torsten. I think it's democracy, right? Like, oh, that's it, very deep. You know, the, um, the 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 people who vote. You know, if you were to put it into voter uh, um, uh, income uh, deciles. So yours is like prices into democracy is basically the problem. Okay, thanks for your most authoritarian comment of the day. The um, yeah, okay, now that's true. People have got, you've got to have public consent for your um, for your plans to raise things for the standards for the low paid. Right. Okay. Last question for you guys to finish up on, where you have to give an answer, <coughs> Alan. Right. Which is, if you have to choose, is the top priority for the next parliament further increases in the minimum wage or action on these other via regulation? So forget the like. Wider questions about raising standards through worker power and things, but in this area, is it higher minimum wages or is it sick pay, certainty on hours, contro more control? Sarah, what's your what's your priority? You're only allowed one because life's tough. The other things. Other. I think. Um, You've gone beyond the minimum wage, as your. Beyond, yeah, yeah. My priority would not be the minimum wage at this point. I think the minimum wage is great. I, I don't think that we need to like stop raising it but I definitely think that what we've learned is that it's not sufficient to address the problems that we really care about and in fact in some ways it might be sort of exacerbating some of them and that's not a reason to go backwards on it but it is a reason to kind of pay attention the only other thing is this like the last comment yeah this okay. you can give it your can I make one closing other? rousing should, stuff should happen yeah here. okay it's not it's not really a rousing thing but I just wanted to say that the you know, I think sick pay is, is obvious and, and I really agree with the, the sort of the scheduling and the insecurity thing. But I think it's interesting that when you actually look at the slide on what you ask people, what, what do they want? Like, what would they trade off? Those weren't the things that came Look up less. top. What came up top was fewer hours and more holidays. And I think, you know, sometimes particularly for sort of policy wonks and people maybe like me that, that think about the experience of work a lot, it's easy to sort of think, okay, we need to fix work and make work better. And, you know, I'm not saying that we shouldn't do that. But actually what people are saying is they just want to work less. They just don't want to do it as much. And this has actually been a debate that has kind of run through the history of thinking about work. You know, like in the in, sort of after the Industrial Revolution, there was a lot of anxiety about the fact that there's, these new jobs in factories were like really repetitive and monotonous. And, you know, people were thinking about can we can we make employees like owners of these companies how can we make it more fulfilling and in the end people decided shorten the hours you know give people more holidays let them retire early um you can't always necessarily make all jobs brilliant but you can just make them a smaller part of people's lives and i would just say like let's not let's not forget that that's actually what people are telling us they want and if you look at more data that's actually what they're doing so like low earners are the ones reducing the hours they work in the labour market. One effect of that is that income inequality is higher, right? So we've got a bit, uh, uh, the reason we don't major on that is one, it's already happening. And two, obviously it costs you money, you can't run your public services and all the rest. And Britain's not had any growth for the last 15 years, so we quite like some, so, you know. And then three, income inequality is up because basically lower income households are cutting their hours while higher income households are staying working longer hours, both people working, paying, people to do the rest of their lives. And that is going to be a very unequal society in the longer run, unless you're prepared to argue for a much higher level of benefits than anybody in Britain is going to be happy to argue. So there's trade-off both ways. But I mean, and also there is something which is like, if you ask people why they're working short hours and flexibility and want more flexibility, they do often say because the job's shit. But they do say that. And the reason I'm, going to, I'm not going to work more than part-time because it's not very fun, they say repeatedly. They, um, no, one answer is, and it's not going to become perfect, so fair enough. And the other answer is, can we please make it less rubbish? Um, right, Nye, what do you want? 
minimum wage or other I mean, to cop out? I, yeah, I literally had uh, two slides with the word priority and number one and number two. I did put number one minimum wage, but um, I suppose that, that seems kind of baked into um, our you know, our politics now, I don't think anyone's ever going to stand up against it. But even if, even if there was a party that said we're going to stop the minimum wage and we're going to, but we're going to give people a proper sick pay system, then I think, yes, I might, I might sign okay, up. Okay, so you agree with Sarah? Alan? No. Yes. No, I mean, I agree. I mean, I think in, in sort of perhaps trying to give a sort of a big picture thing, I mean, one of the things we've seen is employers basically trying to pass risks onto, onto workers. So Sarah's example of the machine breaks down the risk of that is passed on to the workers in part. And that's both employers have done that and actually the state has done that as well in terms of our social insurance is quite you know, threadbare in a lot, a lot of cases. And in many cases, that's passing risk onto groups of people who are least able to, to bear that risk. So that, as a general thing, is where I would see a sort of priority. We, under, um, you know, we should be looking to put that risk where on groups that are better able to to bear it. I mean, I think what Sarah said also about, you know, paid holidays and, you know, work weeks and so on is interesting because I think if you look at long run history, what you see is there are strong social norms around what is a standard work week, what is a standard number of days of work. So you tend to see these sort of episodic changes, but really quite, you know, ch big changes over short periods of time and then stasis. And I think those episodic changes have almost always had to come through legislation or some kind of union campaign. They don't sort of emerge organically from the market, even though you think they should. And so that is possibly something that we should be thinking about as well. Very good. Right. Thank you very much indeed for our panel for lots of great thoughts today. To Nye, Alan and uh, Sarah, can we give them a clap, please? Thank you. Thanks all for um, coming. Good work is about having some rules that vaguely set some minimum standards, amongst other things, and then making sure they're enforced. So come along next work week to talk about the culmination of a three-year project on how Britain enforces its late market rules effectively or not, and what you could do to do better. Good work is about both things. So thank you all for coming. Hopefully see you next week. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.